from Disart, it's Dystopia. Hi friends, welcome back to Dystopia, the podcast where we explore the complex nature of disability and culture and how it plays out into our daily lives. This is Jill Vinn, and I'm a new voice and happy to be joining Chris Smith as the newest co-host of Dystopia. Hey, welcome, Jill. Oh, thank you. How I'm glad exciting. to be here. exciting. Finally, yes. I don't have to do it alone. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's good. I've been um, helping to produce the show from mm-hmm. behind the scenes, uh, and I've enjoyed listening and learning from mm-hmm. all of the conversations you've been having with the amazing artists and activists who have, who have graced the yeah. podcast. Well, and we've been really lucky to get a lot of great people and and uh, for those of you uh, who have done a DisArt event with us, um, you know you know that DisArt is all about dialogue and creating spaces for multiple perspectives. And Jill and I have been doing that work um, for about three years already, which yeah. is kind of crazy. Um, and our debate and our critiques of each other have really shaped, you know, what we do mm-hmm. at, at DisArt with our events, our exhibitions, and symposiums and fashion shows and all the stuff we do and and so why not you know bring that to uh to the podcast as well and so uh super super excited about this this is like dystopia point two or two or Or something like that but in today's episode it's it's pretty fun because the uh we get to reflect on the death of jerry lewis uh, who's a controversial figure in the history of disability yeah you know he, he died um, and on Sunday, this past Sunday, and uh, we have been yeah watching Facebook and talking to people and talking to our friends and family about about who he was and and that he was this well as the New York Times said right adored by many and disdained by others yeah and and that's that sums it up that sums it up <laughs> and it sort of sums up why it's it's really important for us to take a minute and talk about mm-hmm. him um, you know he. Uh, has raised what, what's it's billions billions i think yeah. i read 2.6 billion yeah. dollars over the course of many many years and that's for research for muscular mm-hmm. dystrophy and als and a whole host of other neuromuscular diseases it's for wheelchairs you know and and services and camp and educational help i mean all this stuff that that money did and yet right there's this huge problem yeah so that's where we get into the complexities right yeah so on the surface it seems really simple here's a here's a person who who had a cause and and -hmm. raised a lot of money got a lot of people involved raised awareness about a disease right uh, and disability in a culture that wasn't talking about it no 1966 you know they're on tv Mm -hmm. and uh for the first time and and you know people are talking about disability which again surface looks like a good idea yeah but it's the way he talked about it right right and the Mm -hmm. way as i think about it and i dive into this a little bit more the ways in which he didn't grow right as the culture of disability Mm -hmm. um gained a voice that they may not have felt before and and opportunities through the americans Mm -hmm. with disabilities act and and just uh respect it didn't seem like jerry followed suit no and here's an interesting fact you bring up the ada and i think it's really good so the ada is passed in 1990 in september of that month mm-hmm. right um he he writes this article for parade magazine in which he tries to get into the mindset of being disabled right he's right. sort of playing disabled which we know is a trying bad, it on yeah trying it on and uh, which we know is a bad idea 
Um, and we'll talk, we could talk about that more, but here's what he says. When I sit back and think a little more rationally, I realize that my life is half. So I must learn to do things halfway. I just have to learn to try to be good at being half a person. So him personifying Ugh, yeah. being disabled, um, and I'm sure he would use the word wheelchair bound, oh, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and a victim of disability a victim. Is, is imagining half a life. Right, but again, it's hard to dismiss mm-hmm. what he did, but you got to think about it, right? So today, we're looking at two interviews. Um, the first is... Uh, actually a quite personal interview. My brother Randy and I both have muscular dystrophy and my brother uh, in the, I guess it would be early 80s, was a poster child right, yeah. for uh, Muscular Dystrophy Association in Chicago. And so when he died, my family sent around texts and you know, we were feeling pretty low about it. And yet, you know, I have some, comp- like, like we said, some really critical mm-hmm. reflections. So I called my mom and we had this chat. And so we'll hear that. Yes. And then, and then I also had the opportunity to, to go back and chat with Mike Irvin, who, yeah. who did talk uh, briefly in, his, in the first episode for Dystopia mm-hmm. about the work he did with Jerry's orphans mm-hmm. and, and how through that group they well disbanded yeah, the telethon right. yeah. and brought to light just the the charitable model yeah that's uh, right that the telethon was doing all right yes well let's start with the uh my conversation with my mom and then uh we'll be back so here it is to be recorded i know <laughs> okay, so you were being recorded right now right yes this is real yeah yeah so we're reacting to yesterday's news that uh jerry lewis died and yeah. um you know our our family has a real unique uh history with with jerry yeah. lewis and and muscular dystrophy association and yeah i just thought it would be interesting to to talk a bit about your memories of that, um, yeah. of that time and, and all that. Yeah. Well, actually, this morning, I actually, in my very own quiet time and devotions, I just really thank the Lord for him, for Jerry Lewis. I really did. And all that he meant to really our family. You know, long before we knew of Jerry Lewis as a um as a crusader for muscular dystrophy, I always loved Jerry Lewis. I couldn't wait to see his movies. And right. he brought such happiness and joy to life. And um, I don't know, I just I just admired him as a person long before all of, all of everything changes. And I guess that was something else I was thinking about this morning. You know, you, you don't decide out of the blue that I'm just going to usually, you know, say, okay, I'm going to really get involved in muscular dystrophy or, or cancer research or Parkinson's or a number right. of hundreds of other things. It's not until the reality of that disease hits you smack in the face right. and all of life changes that all of a sudden 
everybody and everything looks different. And so Jerry Lewis, for us, for me, I'm going to just speak specifically to me as the mother of three sons and two sons who uh, were born with a form of muscular dystrophy called, at that time, Wurzenkaufman's disease. Right. Um, he became actually a crusader for me. He was everything that I hoped and dreamed for because in my world at that time, everything seemed utterly hopeless. Um, well, yeah, it was a terrible there, time. Mm-hmm. So that's 1970 or 1968 when Randy is born? Yeah, Rich, what was that, Rich? 1978 when Randy was born. 68. Oh, 68. I'm yeah, sorry, 68. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and tell us, what do you remember about learning about William Hoffman's and then learning about Muscular Dystrophy Association? Like, how did well, that work I, out? Yeah. You know, I think it was really, um, there were people along the way who, when you don't have a name for what you're dealing with, that's an issue. Yeah. So along the way, it was certain things that happened the very first person who ever mentioned anything about seeking some help was a nurse, actually, at um, St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago. And at that time, we had no name. We just knew that there were underdeveloped nerves. We had no diagnosis. But she said to us, you should get in touch with the Chicago um, that was the Services for Crippled Children. That was the first thing she said. Yeah. So yeah. we did. We contacted them. Um, at this time, we had yet not gone to Mayo Clinic right. uh, to actually get a full diagnosis and workup. But during one of the clinics from the uh, that, that association, one of the doctors commented in his examination something to the nature, well, you know, we often see this in muscular dystrophy. Right. And I remember it was like he hit me in the chest and I was totally unable to even speak. Right. Because in the back of my mind, I don't know why that was, of, of all the things, it was that is what I, I was mostly afraid with. Yeah, Connors, yeah, our, our pediatricians, you know, were also watching very closely, but nobody could actually give it a name. Well, and of course, and then, by, that, by that time, you had also you had also seen the telethon. I mean, it was on. Oh yeah, we. Wait, so I was already yeah. aware. Yes, who couldn't be aware? Right. It was just it was just a part of of Labor Day that there would be this wonderful telethon that would be going on, and they and I think that was the, that was his gift. He brought right. to this world an awareness of dystrophy like no one had ever done before. Yeah. And, um, you know, all of the neuromuscular diseases, I think so many people think that muscular dystrophy is one thing. It wasn't. It was 40-some neuromuscular diseases. I mean, from Wardnick Hoffman to Duchenne to uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. I mean, they were all they right. were all under this huge umbrella, and all of a sudden here was someone who was stepping out from his own life, and you know what the thing was? I never understood why he did it. Oh, I knew that he was on the front line, and he was always seeking a cure, um, something to something to stop this, something to mm-hmm. to slow it down, you know. Um, and the other thing, I, I think that we were um, 
uh, I, we just loved about the Muscular Dystrophy Association and Jerry was that he just wasn't out there for research. He was out there for the entire family, all of its members of the family. Yeah. The Muscular Dystrophy Association didn't just take care of us, the patients. They took care of the family, the individuals. I mean, even siblings. Yeah. You know, when I think about the support groups that they had set up for us and uh, and for for your brother and for everybody's sisters and brothers of, of, of children that were going through this. I mean, right. it was so encompassing. It was... And, it wasn't a one a once a year event. I think that's what was so amazing. Right. Even so, though the telethon, you know, right. was out there to, to make money and to and, and to promote the understanding of dystrophy because where else was it being done? It wasn't being done. And here this happy go lucky man who kept the world in laughter showed us a whole other side of himself, and mm-hmm. it was just, yeah, awesome. So we would get, we would, I know that we would, there was a family group that we were yeah. part of, so there was a support group that we uh, met through MDA, and then um, and then they would also assist us in terms of uh, uh, equipment, too, right? Uh, oh, my gosh, yeah. yes. Yeah. That uh, is, um, that perhaps, Chris, was the most overwhelming thing for us as parents. Yeah. The cost of braces and back, all kind of braces. Yeah. Because we didn't just wear, you guys didn't just wear uh, a chest braces. You wore right. leg braces. You right. also needed wheelchairs. And in all of those areas, your body continued to grow. So yeah, the true. longevity yeah. of this equipment was was not, you know, we were lucky if we got two, three years out of it, especially in those younger years. Right. And the cost yeah. of those things was phenomenal. Right. And the yeah. Muscular Dystrophy Association actually would come alongside of us and help us with our insurance companies, too. And between the two of them... Yeah. We we were able to provide you with everything that you needed, and the reality was, without them, and I'm not exaggerating of this, we yeah. would have lost everything. Yeah, we never sure. could have maintained owning a home. I've met people who have lost everything with chronic diseases like this, yeah. and we were so fortunate to have them there. To, to really walk with us. It was a daily thing for us. Yeah, yeah. How did that come about then that Randy was, you know, asked to be the poster child for Chicago? How did that How did that happen? Well, I think what happened is after Dad and I became involved a little bit with the um, uh, support groups and, and things like that, um, I was asked to serve on the the Chicago Muscular Dystrophy Board. Yeah. And that was probably a, a really turning point for me and my commitment to dystrophy. 
And I think because through that, you know, we met a lot of people. We were involved with a lot of a lot of things. We supported a lot of events that were going on. And and you know, by networking that way, people just would know us. And um, so I think that's kind of how that all came about. Yeah. You know that. Um, so Randy was asked yeah. to be that poster child and what did that mean for you guys like what what did that oh my gosh we were elated do you remember rich how excited we were when randy was poster child yeah we we couldn't have been happier it meant that we were very busy yeah out of appearances with randy and he was able to enjoy many many wonderful things the one i really remember the most was well there were two actually uh, in Chicago, Bozo the Clown was probably one of the biggest yeah. children's programs. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. Bozo, and you probably remember this, Bozo came to our house. Right. I mean, yeah. he and the whole camera crew came to our house. He went to school with Randy. He, he met all the kids, and um, Rand, that was awesome. Yeah, you know, I That bet. was just really awesome. And the other one that I remember, and you you probably don't even remember this, but he also got to fly in a helicopter over oh, really? the city of Chicago. Do you remember that, Rich? <laughs> yeah. I went, I think that myself and Dad went, or maybe, maybe you know what, I think maybe Bradley went. I, I think it was Brad. And, yeah, Dad was working, so I was doing a lot of the running around. Yeah, it also the- meant that we, we did talk with a lot of organizations. Yeah. I remember speaking with... Um, I can't remember the name of the real estate. It was a big one. We went to their um, conventions, Remax, I believe it was. Okay. So we were we were very busy. Was the media always with you, or were there always photographers and and cameras and stuff, or was there some other? Oh, you know, there like... probably were always cameras and. Yeah, yeah I'm sure there yeah. were. Right. Um, right. But to be well, honest with you, we probably didn't think too much about that. We were thinking about the people that we were talking to, and they wanted to hear what Randy had to say. Of course, they always want to hear what the mother says. But, you know, yeah. Randy's perspective was different than my perspective. I, right. Right. you know, I, I was the adult in here, and Dad was the adult, and, um, yeah. Well, tell me, tell me about the day. I believe it was an outdoor picnic. <laughs> um, you know yes. where? Where were you? Tell, can you go through that day? We and... were we were celebrating uh, having a huge picnic in Chicago, run by the uh, Budweiser. Oh, okay, yeah. Not Budweiser. I take that back. Brunswick, the the bowling people company, the huge bowling, and they actually held it on their campus. It was an enormous campus. Okay. And they had events. They had events going on all day long. And mm-hmm. I, at one point, they made an announcement that Jerry Lewis would be attending the event. They didn't know. They didn't give us any other time or any anything but that. And you could hear the roar of the people. I, I will yeah. never forget it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we were we had just finished an event. It was you, Rich, right, and me and Randy. Were you there, Chris? I don't think so. No. 
Well, if I was, and, I don't remember. Yeah, I was young. Oh, you remember. would remember about it, yeah. Um, and here we were. We were having a bite to eat. We were sitting at a picnic table, I remember. And he here he came, and he walked around these bushes and trees, and all of a sudden he was standing there. And, of course, how you doing, kiddo? I mean, <laughs> just, you know, and... I want to tell you, I, I, it's, what is that, 40 years ago? Yeah, yeah. And it still moves me to tears. Yeah. That he came over and he embraced Randy and then he embraced me and I felt like, I know it's not the rapture, and I know he's not the Lord, but I will tell you, mm-hmm. I was totally overwhelmed. And yeah, and yeah. you know what it is? You can't stop saying thank you. Right. You can't yeah. stop it. Oh. Yeah. You can't yeah. just, you know, and he was just so gracious. And, and I remember he would walk up to every family and, and kids and... And there was this one young man who was like on a stretcher. I mean, it was kind of, that's how he got around, you know. And yeah, yeah. He, he kissed you and he, he just was, um, everybody was special. And and, he, and you could tell there were moments when he was trying, it was very, very difficult for him. Yeah. Uh, to keep his composure because none of us were keeping our composure. Oh sure, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. I always I always think about how, what sorts of pressures that put on him. Uh, oh my golly! You know, I, I I do think about that, and I think, you know, I think about growing up with with uh, that presence. You know, I was just mm-hmm. going, I was I was just um, cleaning up an old wooden box from my uh, high school years, and in there is. Um, a watch that has the animated Jerry Lewis face oh, on it. Oh yes, and yes. You know, and I don't. I of course I don't remember whenever we would have received that, but oh, um, those were gifts, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and 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 all the the sort of iconography of Jerry Lewis, and um, mm-hmm. you know, and I've always uh, uh, again because we benefited so much. Um, oh. From from him and from that organization, you know when I when oh I, yeah you know when I started working in uh, disability civil rights and and some of the disability culture movement stuff, um, I remember having a really really hard time with some of the criticism of Jerry Lewis and criticism yeah. of the um, you know of the muscular dystrophy mm-hmm. association mm-hmm. in in particular. Um, you know, the desire for a cure and that sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, that that sometimes comes across as you'll be better if you get cured, your life can be meaningful, you know, once Mm -hmm. you're cured. And a lot lot of that has changed over the years. If you watch the program now versus even 10 years ago, a lot of that has changed and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and whatever. and, And, but really, you know, the critique from my heroes, like, uh, you know, Paul Longmore, who is a great author and critic who 
was a mentor of mine. I mean, he, his whole, one of his whole strands of scholarship was to argue that the telethon, not just Jerry Lewis's telethon, but all telethons had the possibility of these really negative effects that, you know, would affect the way that people thought about disabled people and how people would, um, you know, react to uh, disabled people as children, uh, you know, as, as things to be pitied, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember the first time I met Paul Longmore, you know, having that conversation with him, like, how do I reconcile that? You know, how do I make sense of, mm-hmm. of, the, of this of this thing? And, um, you know, so when 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 he died yesterday, I thought, well, wow, what an what a an interesting moment to look at things from multiple perspectives, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, uh, but you, I, know, you know, yeah. I, I think about everything that you're saying. And I know that as a as a child growing up even myself, you come to a point where you begin to make those decisions about how you're going to look at things and how you're going to view those things. Yeah. And they might, they might be different than maybe what your parents did. Um, but I never felt that anything that he did would do anything other than make you a better person. Sure. I never looked at it as a way of looking at poor me, poor that. In fact, I probably yeah. always viewed it, Dad and I both, would, viewed it totally the other way. Yeah. Uh, we felt it was an empowerment to realize that even though this young girl or this young boy, and not only young people, you have to remember, if you remember a gentleman by the name, I think it was Sanders, yeah. he was always on the telethon. He was 40-some years old. He worked for... The Pan American or American Airlines, one of those huge airlines. Yeah. He was just showing the world, you know what? Our life is important. Kids, What you are important. You have worth and value, and you can be anything you want. Right. You know, right. I never yeah. felt probably how some people do feel that. Of course, I wasn't in the chair. Sure. But of course... Well, you were, I, but you, yeah, I mean. I, yeah, I was. You know, how can you say we weren't? We were right with you. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to that moment when you're in the doctor's office and they mention the word muscular dystrophy. And it's, oh, yeah. And it's oh, interesting, yeah. your reaction, um, I'm, my, you know, this, this sort of take your breath away fear and whatever, you know, the, the, the analytical part of me, not the, not the rational, your son sitting and having a cup of coffee, but the guy who works and, and talks to the public thinks, well, maybe you wouldn't have been so frightened if you hadn't have watched the, you know, the coverage of disability uh, in a telethon that, you know, as a necessity needs to tell the truth, you know, um, about what's going on and kids are dying and, and things like that. But, you know, I, I wonder, you know, I, I, I don't know. I always wonder if there might have been earlier on, I know they're doing better now, but earlier on a sort of more empowered, more positive, more 
more um, affirmative message. But then the logical mind, my logical mind says, well, how are you going to raise money if you say everybody's great, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's sort of a weird conundrum. Well, that, you know, you yeah. could say the same thing about any other disease. The day sure. somebody tells you you have cancer, here lately in my life, the moment someone said to me, you have Parkinson's disease, you know, it's all right. of them. It's it's not one thing. It's many, many things. And, and it's what, it's the person you become through that process, but the reality is you're already partially that person anyhow. Right. It's right. either going to make you stronger or it will take you down to the ground. Right. But when you have that initial conversation and somebody says it, I don't care yeah. who you are. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Until you're in that situation. Yeah. Because see, what like, you hear, yeah. but what you hear is, yeah. You don't hear you have muscular dystrophy. You don't hear you have cancer. You know what you hear, Chris? You hear, I'm going to die soon. Right. My life is going to be shortened. Or you're not going to be who, yeah. yeah, you're not going to be who you are. Yeah. That's exactly at that moment what you hear. That, yeah. I'm talking yeah. for a mother. A mother who sure. has waited to have this child and, and then to hear this, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's devastating. Well, and I think too, yeah. it's it's apparent to all of us. You know, you uh, dealing with Parkinson's now, and Randy and I dealing with spinal muscular atrophy and muscular dystrophy. What's mm-hmm. been such a blessing is is that we've known other disabled people. You know, yes. so when when you get the when you get the diagnosis for Parkinson's, you can say, "All right, it's a mystery, kind of." But yeah. I know this person, this person, this person, and they've had it, and I can observe and learn and and think. Yep. And I rem- I remember feeling that way when I was in graduate school and meeting disabled people, and I wa- and I thought, you know, th- this is so edifying uh, to meet people who have my experience and who can help me get through it. And um, and what what's I think what is so phenomenal about MDA, the Muscular Dystrophy Association, is that they were able to provide that for you and dad at a very early time. Oh, yeah. You Definitely. know, when it, when it wasn't so natural to go out, you know, there's no internet, there's no Facebook groups, right. there's, you know, there's none of that. And so yeah. for them to be able to get you in a room with people who were asking the same questions, uh, crying the same tears, and and trying to figure out how to do it, you know, yeah. I think that I think that's pretty special. And and um, you know, so like any moment of our lives, there's always, you know, uh, really positive sides and and always some negative sides. And mm-hmm. you sort of nothing is <laughs> nothing is simple, right? Um, and yeah, and, and that's what I felt yesterday when I found out he died. I mean, I. I was sad and I was, mm-hmm. but I was also conflicted. I also felt like, yeah. you know, um, you know, it's an, uh, I think Brad, our, our brother, sent a text and said, well, it's an end of an era. And I thought, boy, you know, that wraps it up right there. And is it mm-hmm. an era? Is, is it, it's an era that we gained a lot from, but we maybe lost oh. stuff too, you know? And um, so I, I think it's it's just a real human story um 
Yeah, and I really, yeah, thank, thanks for talking with me about it. I think. Uh, well, I could talk forever yeah. and ever about this because I know how it shaped, it, it shaped our lives as parents, Dad and I. It shaped my life as a mother. Yeah. Because yeah. it took me through many, many different areas of life. Um, yeah. Sometimes very deep and, 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 and sad times, but I'm also a Christian and I yeah. can't help but know. That through that time, God already ready was working in our lives to know how to face the reality of whatever life was going to give you. And that was a gift that Dad and I both had at that time. So um, I can understand how people with disabilities might feel exploited, if you want to use that term. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. I can, I can, I can, I can understand that. And you have helped me to see that in a different light. Um, right, right. But I think yeah. all through our life together, we have always worked. You and I specifically. Yeah. On helping each other to see and view, yeah. to view it from from both perspectives, and then take what it is that we choose to hold on to. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, you know, helps us to take the next step. That's, well, and the, that's what and I'm it, thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that there's room for for thoughtful, um, mm-hmm. consider, you know, mm-hmm. configuration of all this stuff. And, um, right. uh, and that's what makes what we can do in conversation so powerful, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Mom. Thanks for, uh, thanks thank you for, for talking. Thank you Okay, okay, love you much. See you later. See you later. I love you okay. too. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Well, thank you for that amazing interview. Yeah, with your it was mom. it was really something. You know, she mm-hmm. she's an amazing woman, and and she's very uh, her heart is right there. You know. Yeah, and she's very articulate, and I can see how much you've benefited from her mm-hmm. and your dad's mm-hmm. um, thoughtfulness. Yeah, and willingness yeah. to recognize and to give you the freedom to have your own opinions. Yeah, yeah. And I I guess I feel like that's what we're offering through the podcast too yeah or trying to yeah exactly right. is that here are different perspectives of mm-hmm. people who have lived it right. and and for me it's hard to reconcile yeah the the thought that as your mom talks about well particularly the financial impact yeah i mean the right. emotional impact for sure provided support mm-hmm. uh where she was lost and you know as yeah. parents they were yeah. not sure where to go but that financial contributions for equipment and braces and wheelchairs and and that i never even thought about the fact of how you kids grow yeah exactly right (laughs) like it's It's not like yeah it's one thing to buy a pair of shoes right yeah uh to buy a back brace that was you know three thousand dollars or right and i and when you (laughs) when you place that Mm -hmm. in the context of okay now we want to challenge the telethon, right. which our, yeah. you know, which our next guest has done and and mm-hmm. done very well. I I can appreciate mm-hmm. where she's coming from and how it's yeah. changed, well, your life, right. really, yeah, by its existence. But then, on the other hand, if it weren't for Mike, 
and his cohorts, maybe we wouldn't be making the progress yeah. uh, that we see now. That we yeah. see now. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's listen to your conversation with Mike and, and again, get, get something very different, right? Yeah. I was wondering what I would remember most about him when he died. Uh, I'd always think about, sometimes I'd think about what would happen on that day, what, what my thoughts would be, because the whole Jerry's orphan, Jerry's Lewis relationship was so contentious for so long. And uh, I wondered how I would react. And I think the thing that came to mind most was the fury with which he, not only he, but the MDA reacted to our protests. Uh, we were like maybe a few dozen people in the days before the internet. So it's not like we had a bunch of online petitions and things like that. Or a few dozen people in the days before the internet who would show up and, pro and protest outside of studios. I would have thought the best thing to do would be to try to ignore us. But instead, um, he just reacted in many ways that have been documented about um, how we are nothing but self-serving and self-aggrandizing. The MDA threatened us with uh, letters saying that uh, we better watch what they say or they're going to sue us. They threatened Evan Kemp, who was the head of the EEOC and at MD, that they were going to try to get him fired. They tried to get him fired from his job at the time. There was just 100% uh, blind fury that we were met with and uh that's the part that is stuck in my mind most right right as you think about that blind fury what what do you think behind that well you know there was an article called jerry lewis versus his kids i believe was the title of it and it was in 1993 uh, and it was in vanity fair magazine and it was written by a woman named Leslie Bennett and it was a profile of him but I remember speaking to her at the time my sister and others speaking to her and it seemed like the reason that she did it around Labor Day that year profiled him was because of this that wasn't the whole uh, point of the article but it was certainly part of it Here's one quote from it, and he was referring to me. Uh, I think he thought I was much more uh, pivotal than I really was. But anyway, but anyway, the, the quote was, uh, quote, this one in, kid in Chicago would have passed through his life and never had the opportunity to be acknowledged by anybody, but he found out that by being a dissident, he gets picked up in a limo by a television station. Uh, First of all, uh, there were no accessible limos at the time, so that wasn't uh, that wasn't likely to happen. But but it just gives you an insight into and how he viewed the opposition. That it was four or five people, and that the only reason that they were doing this was because they're bitter and angry about the disabilities, and they think it's going to get him attention. But later on in the article, she she drew a conclusion which I thought best captured what this was all about on his end. Uh, throughout the article, she talked about his father and how his father was rather cold to him in terms of his accomplishments as a comedian. He didn't seem to give him the type of praise that people like Jerry Lewis and Donald Trump 
seems to crave more than the rest of us. And she concluded that he felt that with this telethon gig, he had finally found the thing that everybody would love him for and that no one would criticize him for. He hadn't found that with his movies and with his art. You know, he was rather, uh, as you say, polarizing figure. People had wildly different opinions about him with the art. But with the telethon thing, he had finally found the one thing where everybody could say, I love Jerry, in an unconditional, unequivocal way. And then along come people, not just regular people, but his own kids, calling him out on his BS. And it just hit him and hurt him in such a way that he became absolutely nuts and MDA and he reacted in the way they did. And I believe that that, from, without ever knowing the guy, but just from what I've read and experienced about him, that seemed to be, to me, to be the most accurate assumption as to why he reacted the way he did. That's interesting. And so when you say his kids, that means the people who were involved in his program. Right. He called, he referred to us at the time as Jerry's kids. Everybody with muscular dystrophy was Jerry's kids, which is why our group called ourselves Jerry's Orphans. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we wanted to, uh, you know, make a, a sarcastic point out of the very serious issue, which is that what happens when you're not a kid anymore, when you don't have the value of being exploited and being held up as a uh, as the kind of image that they wanted to project. And quite often, what would happen is you would literally become, as we said, an orphan in that respect. MDA really didn't have much to offer to you because they didn't really offer that much, nor did Jerry Lewis, nor did any of those folks. And so in that sense, what they did was much more harm than good, because it helped some people in some ways, but for all the money they took in, it didn't do that much for that many people, and the harm it caused for others was immeasurable. For instance, if you did not have muscular dystrophy, you benefited zero in any way at all from the telephone. But you did very much uh, get harmed by the fallout because if you sit a person with muscular dystrophy, a person with cerebral palsy, and a person with, I don't know, arthritis next to each other and ask the average Joe to say who's who, they won't know. They'll just all assume we're the same. So when they see a Jerry's kid on TV and then the next day see a guy with cerebral palsy, what goes on in your mind especially if the advertising is working how it's supposed to be working, is, oh, look, there's one of Jerry's kids. And then you get all the pity and all the negative stuff that comes from that, but no benefits at all. So it was very selfish of folks with muscular dystrophy to accept whatever few things that they got from the telethon in a way that did not also point out how it was hurting other people. You know, one of the, the questions that Chris and I tried to look up is is why Jerry Lewis got involved with the Muscular Dystrophy Association in the first place. Do you have any theories on that? Yeah, I've heard, I don't know for sure, but I've heard that somebody somewhere along the line he worked with, a production person, a cameraman, somebody like that, had a kid or was somehow associated with a young person that had MD, and Jerry met him, 
And the way it hit him was in this way that, uh, you know, it would hit, that hit him in this way that was very much communicated through the advertising, which was, oh, this poor kid, he's so hopeless, I'm going to be a hero. And that's where it all came from. That's what I've heard. Again, from I don't know for sure, but what I've heard, it seems like the most plausible. Yeah. So from your perspective, from the beginning, it's the, everything was built out of pity. I believe so. I, I've never questioned his sincerity in uh, anything that I've said about him publicly. I... I do believe, and maybe it's unfortunate that this is true, that he, in his heart, believed that we are all those things that we uh, fought against him for. I think he thought that we really were tragic and um, he needed to come save us. I don't believe that he was calculating in a way of, well, I'm just going to exploit this to make money or to save my career or anything like that. I really believe that he has a kind of ego that was, I'm going to come and be a big hero for these poor people who are nothing but victims. They're nothing but damsels in distress up in a tower screaming for help. And that's the only role they have in this society and the only role they have in my life. And I'm going to be the one to save them. But how was his idea of saving them was not to try to make any political difference in their life, not to try to empower them, not to try to attack that image that restricted them, but to try to make them something other than they were. In other words, to cure them. And so it was a really warped, very antiquated view of how we, who we are and what we are and what we have to offer. But I think he really believed it. And at the time, too, it was the 1950s and 60s and uh, and that's how people looked at it. So it was right. the prevailing the prevailing narrative of the time. So it was much easier to fall for that than it is now. But the reason it is easier was easier back then was because disabled folks did not fight back in the same way that right. they do now. Right. So at what point do you you go back and think, you know what, I, I don't want to be in this the prevailing narrative or disabled people should not be in that you know, right. Then there, you know, like how? What do you attribute from the fifties, the sixties, and then on into the you know to current that is contributing to this changing narrative that's hopefully more healthy? You mean why is it different now, or why was it that way? Yeah, back or why why did you start thinking differently? Why did I start thinking differently? Mm-hmm. Well, my mother never bought into that. And I think that's where the disconnect came. My mother never made me feel like I was any of those things. And so I think that even as a child, once I was old enough to realize what they were saying, I always kind of felt like, wait a minute, he's not talking about me. That's not me at all. Mm. And I think that's where the first questions came from. And then later, as I got older, I realized that not only was it inaccurate and kind of insulting to me personally, and I felt that way, and it was also dangerous in the ways that I just I just eliminated. But as a good example, um, when I got out of college 
and I wanted to, you know, be more independent and get around and have my own life more as all people who just got out of college do, mm-hmm. there was absolutely no accessible public transit in Chicago. And I could not drive, drive. so really uh, having someone drive me anywhere that was on walking distance, yeah, on walking distance was my only uh, alternative. So anyway, um, I began right. to think about the importance of public transit in my life, and I began to think about why we are excluded. And the reason we're excluded is because people didn't think we were worth it. And one of the main messages that they got every year that told them we were not worth it was the telephone, which said that the answer is to cure me. The answer is not to accommodate me. The chance, the answer is to cure me. And so, therefore, we don't have to worry about things like accessible buildings and accessible buses. We'll just push those people off in a corner where they can quietly sit, and then hopefully someday Jerry will come rescue them, make them all normal like us, and and then we won't have to be bothered. And uh, that was really when it started to sink into me that this is not only insulting, it's not only name-calling that I could just shrug off, but that this was dangerous. Wow, that's that's really interesting, um, and we see how much the media uh, plays a role in perception for yes. people. Right, and, exactly, and it was it was 24 hours every or 21 hours, whatever that was a marathon mm-hmm. every year. Something people look forward to, millions and millions of people. Right, and this is where they got this is where they got their primary source of information about disability from people who did not have them. And uh, so it was time that they started hearing a different story from people with a little more authority. So when you take all of that and all your experiences and now uh, thinking about Jerry's death, was he still relevant up until his death? In our community, I don't think so, only as a history lesson, and even in that sense, uh, he had faded. Uh, A couple of years ago, I was speaking to a friend who's a very young, very sharp, very aware woman who knows a lot about uh, politics and disability, and I mentioned to her about how we protested the telethon. And she said, the what? And I said, the telethon. And I explained, and I said, it was hosted by Jerry Lewis. And she said, who? And then I proceeded to explain to her the whole thing. And she looked at me like I was making up some wild story. So she was about 24 years old at the time. And she had totally gotten out of touch with who Jerry Lewis was and what the telethon was. I didn't know whether to feel good or bad about that. <laughs> right. um, I guess I felt good that that those images were totally vanquished, but I also uh, felt bad that uh, you know, I think sometimes in order to, like they say, to keep history from repeating itself, we have to remember it. Right. Well, as you talk about that, one of the things that I remember as I listened to your conversation with Chris is that this is a history lesson. And I was taking notes and I was, you know, absorbing it because there is such a, a depth of history for the disabled community. Right. 
that right. is important to preserve and, and talking with people like yourself who were part of that and a part of the disability civil rights, it a lot of people don't know that. And it's not taught. And so yeah. what we're hoping to do is hear more from people like yourself and others who can capture that history and give some context to where we are today. Well, I have, um, and we can continue to talk because I love to talk with you, um, but I do have, I'd love to get your thoughts and your response to people who are on the other side, you know, who have the adoration for Jerry and um, the people who have fond memories of and the association and all that they benefited from that association. Well, you know, there are... MDA's been there a long time. Uh, I'm not going to argue with anybody who says uh, they got something good out of it. Uh, whether I think it's good or not is irrelevant. If they think it's good and it had some value, then good. I'm glad they got it. And um, But they are being selfish, I feel, if they accept it and then say, therefore, I have to shut up and mm-hmm. pretend like there's no harm being done here. So if you got something good, and I got some things good from MDA. I went to a summer camp where I made a lot of good friends, some of which I still keep up with. I got that good, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that I have to say, and therefore the damage you're causing my friend with cerebral palsy, I'm not going to speak up about. Right. Uh, so I think that, that um, they have to think beyond themselves. The people who are also caught up about cures, I'm not going to um, say that that's a wrong priority because maybe to them it is. Maybe their disabilities are so physically overwhelming that it makes it difficult for them, makes the things that are important to me seem like luxuries to them. And I'm not going to say that they're wrong in feeling that way, but I will say that if you think the charity model is the answer, you're, you're uh, going to be very disappointed. Because if we sit here and say, um, please cure me, and and here's 25 bucks, please cure me, you're not going to accomplish anything because the fact that you have to do that proves that what you want is so important to everybody else that you have to beg for it. If you want that kind of service from people, if you want more medical approaches to disability, then you better stand up and say, I'm worth it, and I demand this, and it'll become a higher priority, and it'll get done a lot faster. Yep, I think that seems like the common theme of all the work that you've done. Well, I hope so. In this regard, I just would like to make it clear that a lot of really, and in all these things too, a lot of important people help out. Nobody does these things alone. Other people like Laura Hershey, who lived in Denver, was the best writer on disability issues I've ever known. Uh, she she did a lot of good work on this. Harriet, Mc, Harriet McBride Johnson, the great novelist and lawyer, who also had MD in South Carolina. She was very important. Um, my my sister helped me out a lot. My uh, late wife Anna, my current wife Ronnie, people of Adapt, all kinds of people took this up. Had it just been me or any one person sitting in a corner complaining we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. So it it succeeded because we put out a message that not only resonated with a lot of people, 
but the people with whom it resonated then had the the uh, ability and guts and courage and all that it takes to actually get up and do something about it. Yeah. And that's why it worked. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate having the chance to talk to you. Okay, Jill, thanks a lot. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Jill, for that conversation with Mike. I mean, there it is, right? The other side of the coin. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think it was a really important important thing to hear. I think it is. I think mm-hmm. it gives us uh, more perspectives. As we heard your mom say, there, right. you know, there's always more perspectives to consider. And I, and I hope that our listeners would agree that, we got a couple different perspectives and, yeah. and food for thought. Yeah, well, exactly. And now it's now it's your time not to make a decision, because that you know that's what we always want to do as human mm-hmm. beings. What's your side? What's right. your decision? Um, live in that, live in the space of um, that wonderful tension. And, yeah. and and I think that this art does that a lot. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it, everybody. And uh, uh, this is Dystopia Dis Art Production. Produced by Liz Wade and now co-hosted. Did you have fun? I did. I love it. All right. We're going to keep doing this. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Chris. And Jill. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Subscribe to Dystopia on iTunes and make sure to visit our website, dystopiapodcast.org, to find transcriptions, all of our episodes, dystopian news, and much more.